0: If you hold your hand close to your face, you will obviously see it. But you will see what is just beyond in greater focus. You need to pull your hand back from your eyes until it comes into focus, which is, for me, about right there. There is where I can see my hand, but there is also where the background becomes blurred. Thus, each one of us can see and not see all at the same time. And that is why it is said that vision is the most alienating of the senses, because we cannot see everything at once. There is always something we cannot see. In my first lecture, I proposed that the notion of an American body is one that is difficult to envision and that this has been the case for almost 250 years. When the United States separated from Britain in 1776, there were no ready metaphors for how to embody the new nation. And this is large in part because the colonies comprehended themselves as parts of the British body, the king's body, a regal body, whose limbs were being painfully severed. Painful, too, for the colonists, I might add, not because they had to start over, but instead because they had to make an image out of something they had themselves destroyed. And so the intercessors rushed in. The great history painter Benjamin West, the lone American who served as a court painter to King George III, suggested the body of a Native American person to represent the continent. But this was problematic because it was too obviously different and the frontiers between white settlement and indigenous sovereignty were still tentative and contentious. Others suggested animals to symbolize the country, marveling at the range and difference of species in North America. Benjamin Franklin offered the body of a snake, a humble image to be sure, but a remarkable animal that regrows where it is severed, always whole, even when it is fractured. Flying squirrels were also popular, and so were the bald eagle and the turkey. That the American people would be represented in the body of their president was not a foregone conclusion. George Washington, of course, was widely admired for what the public knew of his military success, and he was named even during his presidency as the pater patriae, the father of the nation. But as a separate matter, there was little consensus about what a president was, to the letter of the law, much less what it could symbolize in the larger sense. Was a president like a king by another title, or a benevolent dictator like the Roman Cincinnatus? Was he supposed to keep his profession and rule the country on the side? Was he fit to rule if he did not have property or slaves? The sovereignty of the states was another issue. Would each state have its own president or something else? And would the states bow to the authority of the President of the United States? These issues were many vast and complex, and the American people for a brief time were fairly ambivalent. The first representation of George Washington as a symbol of the entire nation Is not, I am certain, one you are thinking of. It is this, the city of Washington, designed by Pierre L'Enfant. L'Enfant was an interesting man for the job. He was French, a Parisian court painter to King Louis the Beloved, who left France to enlist in the Continental Army and fight against the British during the American Revolution. In 1790, and at the suggestion of the president, George Washington, U.S. Congress designated a compact 100 square miles of riverside land to serve as the new nation's permanent capital. The land was donated by the state of Maryland, encapsulating the existing city of Georgetown, a different George, your George, not ours, across the Potomac, from the thriving slave port of Alexandria in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Washington's estate, Mount Vernon, included a working plantation and enslaved laborers and is 15 miles south. The plan for the capital city unfolded according to debates in a newly formed and contentious Congress. Thomas Jefferson was against any new city because he was principally concerned for the will of the people, and thus, he argued, any new development should naturally follow the contours of the existing city of Georgetown. In the end, L'Enfant appeased Jefferson's demand for a democratic arrangement of space by laying out the city according to a grid. Since equally spaced rectangles, seemed rational and fair. But the federal faction in Congress sought a capital city that would rival European court life. This was L'Enfance Bailiwick, to be sure. So he designed an axial web of grand alleys to be superimposed over the grid wide avenues with sight lines that could accommodate views of uninterrupted military parades. He conceived of the National Mall, a wide strip of land connecting the U.S. Congress building with the president's palace, later to be called the White House, to be a raised lawn on which the president would process imperially back and forth. The awkward meeting points between the rectilinear grid and the diagonal axes were, to L'Enfant, intended as empty spaces that would eventually hold monuments for the assured successes of a country whose history was still unfolding. Now, as someone who's lived in Washington for 10 years, I will be the first to attest to the fact that the L'Enfant Plan is a miserable failure, impossible to navigate. L'enfant, poor guy, was fired. Who in their right mind would join together an 18th century city to an artless grid to the grandest aspirations of Versailles? And yet, this bizarre hybrid was the first real symbolic representation of Washington, whose name it bears work on the construction of the new Washington was slow to start and beset by political consternation. But one crucial thing happened to refresh American energies in favor of the capital city. On December 14, 1799, George Washington died. What ensued was a massive outpouring of public support for the first president, a rush of unifying enthusiasm heretofore unheard of in the nation's short history. U.S. Congress held a recess on the day of his funeral, led by the example of the then First Lady Abigail Adams, a woman so popular and outgoing that both critics and supporters called her Mrs. President high-society women around the nation went into a year of formal mourning for Washington. Tributes came even from around the world. In a significant gesture to the young United States, the Royal Navy's battleships lowered their colors. And thus, in the absence of Washington's real body, came the urgency to visualize it once more. The favored George Washington was to appear as not too strong, like a king. Americans were decidedly over that idea, but not too weak. He needed to personify the strength of the Federal Republic that was already confidently marching westward in its grasp of the entire continent. Instead, the favored representation of Washington in the early 19th century imaginary was this the Gilbert Stuart Athenian portrait, painted in 1796. One painted during the President's lifetime and famously memorialized by the U.S. Treasury on its currency starting in 1869. This painting has the body that Americans wished to see for themselves. First, it was understood to have an honest facial expression. A slight blush in the cheeks conveyed sincerity, as though the president were unable to erect a false facade of his true emotions. His widened jaw conveyed patience, determination, and control. The downcast stare read to the viewer as though Washington were in the presence of a moral exemplar conveying modesty and deference in one glance. And most importantly, the unfinished quality of the portrait invites the viewer to complete it himself, within his own imagination of what the ideal George, and therefore the ideal American, should be. In the 1830s, one journalist said, It is the mirror for the image itself reproducing the very virtues in themselves. Unlike the urban Washington, DC, Stewart's portrait is intended as a literal illustration. However, I would like to suggest that it is also in its own way abstract, owing to its close association with increasingly popularized images of Washington's profile on hard currency. Even before its appearance on the one-dollar bill, Stuart's portrait was also subject to an astonishing circulation in print. Stuart had left his portrait unfinished because it was a template not only for later paintings of his own, but also for countless renderings as print engravings, serving a popular market eager to purchase commercialized images of the first president. One of the roles of fiat money is to stabilize the abstraction of monetary value, to give it a unitary form, and reduce the volatility inherent in a transaction. The Athenian portrait while not actually money, is likewise numismatic. It represents American sociopolitical cohesion across time and space. Its appearance as cash, later in history, only reinforces this role. After Stewart's portrait, Emmanuel Leutze's George Washington Crossing the Delaware is the image of the first president enshrined in the American imagination, a gleaming symbol of American unity and rebellion against tyranny. Leutze cuts an interesting figure in American art history. He was born in Germany, emigrated to America in 1840, but moved back to Germany in 1841 to study painting in Dusseldorf. There, he espoused a concept of romanticized history painting current in the German school, aligned with notions of a progressive universal history rooted in the philosophies of Kant and Hegel. In this, Düsseldorf differed from the cyclical model of history, which I addressed in my first lecture on the American landscape painter, Thomas Cole. For Cole, The fall of civilization was a warning against decadence and wealth. But Loetze took a different tack, one that was reactive to the 1848 political revolutions sweeping Europe. The rises and downfalls of nations corresponded to embedded national character. To him, America was the most inspiring modern nation because its success as such was born out of a revolution against oppressors. And therefore also to him, George Washington symbolized nothing if not the whole esprit de corps, the spirit of the entire people. We must momentarily leave to the side the naivete of Leutze's Romanticism, if only to see Washington crossing the Delaware simply for what it is. At an impressively large twelve and a half by 21 feet, it is virtually the size of an entire wall with a highly artistic and exciting composition. The subject is General Washington's leadership of the Continental Army across the treacherously icy Delaware River on Christmas Day, 1776 en route to a surprise attack on the Hessian garrison at the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey. The event in history is cemented as the turning point in the war, evidence of Washington's expert supervision of military forces and his ability to exhort the rangy and exhausted troops to victory. In its emotionality, Loitza spares no expense. The statuesque Washington stands erect in an improbably tiny vessel, enveloped in what we can only guess is divine light, illuminating the national mission during a nighttime crossing as his men scramble to fall in line. Of course, historical accuracy was not Loetze's calling owing to the artist's idealistic views of the progressive nature of civilization. The painting was a resounding tribute to both American freedom and American character. I'm sure, as you can imagine, when it was displayed in New York, it was a spectacular success. Within a year, the picture was prepared as a line engraving by the well-known French company goupil Vider, And that print version is the one that found its way into virtually every 19th century American parlor for the next 70 years, at least. Leutz's painting gave all Americans the right George at the right time. And I say all Americans because by 1850, the American body was shifting, changing. It was breaking. By then, most knew that the relationship between the North and South was polarized beyond repair. Patriotism in the North sensed its inheritance of American values to be rooted in New England, including personal liberty and suffrage, which were sharply at odds with the institution of slavery. Patriotism in the South aligned itself with the American revolutionary confidence to overthrow a despotic government, which they increasingly compared to the North's demands for abolition. Strangely enough, both North and South, then, could see themselves reflected in Loitz's inspiring painting without a second guess. The ability of both sides to appeal to a shared national iconography of the revolution lubricated the re-entry of the defeated South into the Union at the conclusion of the Civil War. But then something changed. The Washington that was so bright in the eyes of grandparents seemed altogether less interesting to their grandchildren. Washington began to disappear, or at least the Washington Americans knew, humble, honest, but unconquerable, began to fade. New biographies of the first president, such as W. B. E. Woodward's Bunk, published in 1923, disproved, cherished stories about Washington's honesty and virtue, origin myths now taken to be totally old-fashioned. Americans in the jazz age were delighted to read in the papers about scandals, and Washington was outed as the most scandalous of all. A drunk, a womanizer, a gambler, and a dancer, He couldn't stand to read a book, and he couldn't even spell. Inasmuch as these descriptions make Washington into an object of mockery, they also make him into a flamboyant everyman, the great Gatsby of the Revolution. Even the more temperate biographers throughout the 1920s and 30s acknowledged that Washington's life had been romanticized throughout the 19th century. It's not that there wasn't any interest left in the founding father, but that what made him an interesting story had changed. Here is one entertaining example. The painter Grant Wood, best known for his 1930 painting American Gothic, typifies the shift. And here I also show his 1932 Daughters of the Revolution, taking its title from a conservative American women's organization popularly known as the DAR, whose eligibility for membership is determined by establishing an authentic genealogical connection to Revolutionary War soldiers. Wood said it was a rotten painting, carried only by satire. In that sense, is rotten, very rotten indeed, in the sense of being quite naughty. Three elderly DAR ladies, one preciously holding a delicate cup of tea, in front of, what else, a mounted colored print of Leutze's Washington Crossing, the Delaware. The v-shaped clearing of space in the center between the second and third woman is an inversion not only of the triangular composition of Loitz's painting in the background, but also the similar shape formed by Washington's legs splayed out in the boat. The satirical point is all too clear. The image of Washington as the saintly hero only continued to be relevant to decidedly unmodern aunties who would recoil from the certain aspects of Washington's real body, so to speak. If there is a defining feature of Washington in the 20th century, then it might be identified as the tension that had characterized his images from the start, between the search for a coherent American identity And the incoherence of a body in which to locate it. The great iconoclasm of abstraction, born out of the mass destruction of two world wars, refuted the 19th century's doctrines of progress, which could no longer account for the world's fundamental absurdity. Thus rejected, artists came into new conventions, processes, and views about history itself. What is clear is that paintings like Loitz's Washington Crossing, and in fact the entire practice of painting, could never again be so naive. In 1953, the artist Larry Rivers reinterpreted Leutze's Grand Manor painting in the language of gestural abstraction, in his own painting titled Washington Crossing the Delaware. Rivers constructed a bricolage of the main elements in Lloyd's mammoth original. General Washington appears alone in the boat at the center of Rivers' work, turned to face the viewer. Human and equine figures scatter across ice floes denoted by rough swaths of thick white paint. Rivers seemed to leave the work in an overall state of incompletion. Figures and lines blur in an abstract expressionist style recognizably derived from Rivers' mentor, Willem de Kooning. Thematically, just like we saw with Grant Wood, Rivers divorced his painting from the ideological bravura claimed of its source image. Rivers wittily undercut Loitz's idealized form of history, demonstrating his figures as plastic and ambiguous. Unlike Wood, however, Rivers's work is not satire. There's nothing obviously funny about it. But if it's not a parody, then it is a polemic, deploying the overly emotional and even the hyper-masculine stridency of history painting as a format that only has continued relevancy as a subversion. In Rivers's words, I couldn't picture anyone getting into a chilly river around Christmas time with anything resembling hand-on-chest heroics. The very term heroic in 1963, 1953 had a clear and proximate connection to the patriotism of allied victory in World War II. Within the arts, more specifically, the later 1940s and 1950s favored a muscled up and heroic vision of American free expression crystallized by the Abstract Expressionists' huge canvases, gestural aesthetics, and moody vision of the sublime. See for example one of the moodier ones, Barnett Newman's *Vir Heroicus Sublimus, about eight feet high and eighteen feet across. And if that's not the size of a history painting, then I don't know what is a palpitating red field interrupted periodically by narrow vertical stripes. When it was first exhibited, Newman wrote an accompanying text instructing viewers not to back away from it, as one might from a large painting, but rather to take it in from a close distance in order to allow themselves to be overwhelmed. This was an artwork meant to ravish and conquer. But now somewhat like Wood again, Rivers' commentary holds up a critique of American heroism, specifically by highlighting its overbearingly, unbearably masculine tone. The sexuality implied by Abstract Expressionism in the 1950s, and certainly comprehended of Newman's painting, was not lost on the public. One reviewer mistranslated the Latin title Vir Heroicus Sublimus to Heroic Man Erect in order to criticize its lack of nuance. Parenthetically, Newman had intended it to mean, quite correctly, man, heroic and sublime. As a rebuttal, Newman defended himself by calling the reviewer's attack a castration. Now I could go on about this interesting back and forth, but I will not. Suffice to say that Larry Rivers had an idea of the kind of critique he was after in Washington Crossing. The artist remembers having been laughed at and labeled as a reactionary because he included a pastiche of a romantic painting when others had radically done away with figuration in general. The public wasn't upset, Rivers recalled, but painters were. By painters, of course, Rivers did not mean all painters, but rather the macho men accepted into the abstract expressionist fold. Note here in the now iconic photograph of the so-called irascibles, the presence of only one woman head astern. While he did enjoy some acceptance within this group, he also had one foot in a subterranean culture of gay artists, many of whom were his friends, collaborators, and indeed, his lovers. Rivers was bisexual, but perhaps that personal information is not really as useful as it is to know his belief that gay subcultures in the 1950s, to that point the most overtly homophobic decade in American history, represented an interesting metaphor for political and social conformity for instance rivers called Loitza a lover of Napoleon how else can we read this but in the light of his later painting of 1964 the greatest homosexual which is a painting of Napoleon all of these are deliberate if absurd provocations rivers wished most of all to unmask even through hyperbole The hypocrisies of power in the buttoned-up official American culture of the 1950s. One of the reasons why River's work shines in memory is because shortly after it was acquired by the Museum of Modern Art, it arrested the attention of the MoMA curator Frank O'Hara, who was also a budding writer and critic. O'Hara's queerness as well as his frequent collaborations and on-again, off-again romantic relationships with Rivers and other artists is well-documented. The poem, On Seeing Washington Crossing the Delaware at the Museum of Modern Art, is grounded in a description of Rivers's painting, but soon becomes a personal letter to George Washington himself. Dear father of our country, so alive you must have lied incessantly to be immediate, here are your bones crossed on my breast like a rusty flintlock, a pirate's flag, bravely specific and ever so light in the misty glare of a crossing by water in winter to a shore other than that the bridge reaches for. O'Hara professes familial love, he calls Washington his father, the poet's own living heart is a reliquary for Washington's remains. But there also exists profound disappointment in O'Hara's words. The reliquary is secretly a deadly arsenal, the boat is disoriented, elsewhere in the poem. O'Hara rages with cynicism, still speaking to Washington. See how free we are? O'Hara exposes the mythic hero who once spoke for all Americans as a liar. He speaks only for some. But wait, a pirate's flying? O'Hara's invocation of the Jolly Roger, although it would seem in passing reminds us of a different flag strangely absent from Rivers's composition. Washington's body is still there from the original, but the all-important American flag that provides the top of the pyramid and therefore the pinnacle of Washington's achievement has now disappeared. Surely it is the American flag that O'Hara insinuates in the mention of the pirates, neither visible in Rivers's pastiche, but notwithstanding an image squared with the sense of impending calamity elsewhere in the verse. But even more striking than the missing flag is how elsewhere in the tightly knit gay artistic subculture in which Rivers and O'Hara worked, the American flag is an object of unrelenting focus. For example, take Jasper Johns's flag paintings in wax encaustic on a pasted newsprint ground, which take the general form and design of an iconic object, but with a deadpan attitude, just another artifact in the visual world ready to be rendered. Johns conflated the idea of flag and painting, making instead a depersonalized waxy double, one that looks like a flag as an antiquated specimen shrink-wrapped in plastic. He therefore replaced the cultural meaning of the flag by relieving a well-known symbol from its symbolic functioning, just as Loitz's painting from the 19th century had been relieved of its symbolic functioning in the 20th. To salute Johns's painting of a flag would be an irrational gesture. And yet, for all of its somewhat cynical silence, Johns seems to be able, in some way, to protect the personality behind his many flag-shaped works. One direct example is In Memory of My Feelings, Frank O'Hara, 1961, a monochromatic painting in oil and canvas adopting the general format of the American flag with the addition of a stacked fork and spoon and hinged mysteriously in the center. Color peeking out from the lower right-hand edge of the canvas suggests that it was painted over the preliminary groundwork of a flag painting, which was not uncommon for Johns to do at the time. Despite the dedicatory title, spelled out in stencils on the lower left, the work's apparent obfuscation had also to do with the homophobia of the era. Johns, who was gay, would have known that a more emotional overture to one of his male friends would have been the ultimate tell. And yet the painting is still a tribute, one that the preeminent critic Leo Steinberg might have called loving. Notice the cuddling fork and spoon. Johns' painting again resists the generally expressive purpose of the American flag, whose shape it adopts only to recuperate the personal and equally expressive purpose of those small, little indications of a private life within. The first line of O'Hara's poem reads, My quietness has a man in it. One wonders what we would see if we could open the painting up at the hinges. That pretends, of course, that there is an inside to see. What do I mean? Washington's ghost is summoned once more to return to Frank Stella's Delaware Crossing, 1962, a painting so external in its obvious geometric arrangement that it might almost render its title pointless. The painting, measuring a six and a half feet squared is an extension of the monochromatic work Stella undertook in 1958, the austere black paintings, which made the then 22-year-old artist instantly notorious in the New York art world and a leading painter in the emerging minimalist movement. Delaware Crossing is one of six Benjamin Moore paintings. So-called, because they take as their colors, Benjamin Moore house paints directly from the can into the canvas. One painting for each type of spectral color, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. The other paintings in this series have titles referencing the Civil War, but only Delaware Crossing maintains a reference to Revolutionary War history, and at that to history painting. When asked in 1964 about the meaning of his stripe paintings, Stella famously said, What you see is what you see, a dictum that has come to stand in for minimalist art as a whole. And yet, I think there is still a history lurking behind this one, located out of focus behind the center of our gaze. Much has been made of the black paintings in contemporary art, especially their sheer and radical literalism, working from the predetermined format of the size of the canvas. Much has also been made of their downbeat titles, sometimes general, like The Marriage of Reason and Squalor in the vaguely apocalyptic cadence of William Blake, and sometimes too specific to be legible to us anymore, such as Tomlinson Court Park, the name of a public housing project in New York City. But others are specific and legible, and I think one stands out as unsettlingly so. Die Fahne Hoch, 1959, the title in English, The Flag on High, which is the first line of the national anthem of Nazi Germany. Stella deploys the same basic design scheme in his rendering of Delaware Crossing Such a comparison cannot be merely anodyne. If we see Stella as having internalized the approach of Larry Rivers and Jasper Johns, then we might conclude that Delaware Crossing is yet another mid-century variation on the theme of Washington's iconicity, a by now standard repudiation of seductive presidential power read through the new lens of the disastrous totalitarianism of Nazi Germany and the massive fact of the Holocaust. But that doesn't seem to fit exactly. The the historical stakes seem to demand something else. Another option is to go back one step. We might conclude then that Delaware Crossing is a response to the previous generation's abstract expressionism, a criticism against the will of this type of art to fully subjugate the mind and eye. Of course, that was not the explicit goal, as Newman himself protested, but it was nonetheless latent. Or option three, the most extreme. Externalized and diagrammed, completely emptied of subject and emotion, even the high-minded subjects and emotions brought forth by the title, Delaware Crossing casts doubt on whether a contemporary artist should any more retain the utopian right to represent the private self within a world so thoroughly corrupted by unilateral power, tragedy, and mass murder. Where we encounter this same concept, albeit in a slightly more accessible way, is in pop art. It should tell us something that Andy Warhol liked Delaware Crossing so much that he purchased from Stella a miniaturized series of the Benjamin Moore paintings. Warhol, always the cipher, was at the same time in the early 1960s making his way through similar issues of how to represent the American public back to itself, whether that is in the deadpan language of commercial culture, as in his Campbell soup cans, or in media images of collective tragedy, as in his treatments of post-assassination magazine photographs of Jacqueline Kennedy. On the one hand, Warhol holds a dark mirror up to the homogenizing crush of consumerism that matured in America in the 1960s. But on the other, Warhol ruptures the glossiness of these objects, both objects for sale and objects of desire sometimes to their limit, to suggest, I think, that there is still a story left to tell. His remarkable race riot paintings of 1963-64 are an appropriate choice here. These silkscreened canvases are based on photographs of atrocities committed against young black protesters in the Birmingham campaign of the civil rights movement, as published in Life magazine in 1963. To quote Warhol in Art News in the same year, when you see a gruesome picture over and over again, it doesn't have any effect, which may have equated with the apathy of our contemporary culture defined as it is by images on pages and nowadays screens. What I think Warhol really meant, though, was that it doesn't have any effect but should. People did actually go down south to help with the civil rights movement because they saw moving photographs of the injustices in magazines and on TV. There is, and always has been, an interest in popular images and what they make us feel or don't, but there is equally always a bit of space left for us to resist, to bounce back. And at his very best, this is what Warhol wants us to see. To that end, The race riots rejuvenate our understanding of the American mission. After all, Warhol silkscreened them in red, white, and blue. With George Washington's body disappeared, other bodies emerge. Let me finish with a final picture. The African-American painter, Robert Colescott's George Washington Carver Crossing the Delaware page from an American history textbook, an iconoclastic painting of 1974, first exhibited in 1975, a year that brings us very close to the patriotic American bicentennial celebrations of 1976. In it we see yet another pastiche of the now well-recognized scene. Only now it is another Washington at the helm, George Washington Carver, a prominent black scientist who was born into slavery, but who became a highly regarded botanist and agricultural advisor to three U.S. presidents. Colescott's rendition, however, complicates any sense of heroism, nor even pride, by a painting the attending figures with the crudest exaggeration of black-faced minstrelsy, a bawdy theatrical performance style from the late 19th and early 20th centuries intended to mock people of African descent. To Black Americans, not only the name, but also the idea of Washington has a different resonance entirely. At the conclusion of the Civil War, formerly enslaved people had only one name, their Christian name. There was no surname because enslavers deprived them of a personal history and a sense of legacy as a part of the broader demoralization of forced servitude. Many Africans then chose the surname Washington. And because many enslaved persons also did not know their birthday as property, this idea was only abstract, many chose the date July 4th, Independence Day. These 19th century African Americans, of course, were not naive to the fact that the first president was a slave owner himself. Rather, their decisions reflected a core belief in the revolutionary American experiment in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to which all United States citizens are supposedly entitled. Colescott, painting in the 1970s, knew that these promised endowments were slow, if at all, to come to the many descendants of these Washingtons. Racism haunted and still haunts America, a racism lodged at America's core. Like the naive patriotism in George Washington crossing the Delaware, it is a well-worn habit, subliminal and so completely devastating. Was it doubted that those who corrupt their own bodies conceal themselves," wrote the great American bard, Walt Whitman in 1855. And if those who defile the living are as bad as they who defile the dead, and if the body does not do fully as much as the soul, and if the body were not the soul, what is the soul? along the course of this series i have attempted to demonstrate the many bodies of a nation the suicidal and the weak the oppressed bodies filled with radiant hope bodies that have or do not have a right to representation other bodies remain but whitman's question fills me now regarding the body of a nation and if the body We're not the soul. What is the soul?